Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. It is Tuesday, today, the 23rd of January. Thanks uh, so much for joining the pod. We're going to talk uh, about the nursing home industry today, and more specifically, what happens um, when money, 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 money uh, in the form of private equity gets involved. Yes. If we are lucky, all of us will get older and need some kind of help. Um, many of us would love to age at home and place, you know, comfortable and whatever. But the truth is that a lot of us are going to end up in nursing homes or assisted living facilities. And if not us, then maybe our loved ones. And a couple of years ago, the Biden administration raised a lot of concerns about the state of nursing homes and corporate investment in that industry. So to learn more about this and hopefully get some guidance on what the future may look like for some or all of us, uh, we wanted to get smart about it. So here to make us smart is Mark Unruh. He's a professor of population health sciences at Cornell Medical College. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. So first, can you lay the kind of groundwork about how big this industry is, the nursing home assisted living facility industry, and, you know, who lives there? Sure. Uh, So there are about 15,000 nursing homes in the U.S. Uh, Most are for-profit, about two-thirds of the facilities. Um, They take care of basically two populations. One population is for post-acute care, and these are generally individuals who are just discharged from the hospital but aren't quite well enough to go home yet and spend a few weeks in the facility receiving uh, rehabilitation therapy. And the other population is there for long-term care. And these are individuals who reside in the nursing home. They aren't going back home. They receive custodial care. Keep going a little bit uh, because there's sure. there's more to it just than that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the amounts spent on nursing home care aren't trivial. For example, uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, with the post-acute care population, that's mainly covered by Medicare. And Medicare spends in the neighborhood of $26 billion annually on post-acute care in these facilities. And Medicaid uh, is the primary payer for long-term care in nursing homes. And those pro- Medicaid programs spend about $57 billion each year on long-term care in nursing homes. Uh, and as I mentioned, uh, about two-thirds of these facilities have for-profit ownership, and about 5% of these facilities have private equity ownership. Uh, private equity ownership peaked roughly between 2013 and 2017, according to our estimates. Uh, it, it's tailed off a bit, uh, but still remains about 5% these days, uh, uh, to the best of our knowledge. Um, But private equity differs a little bit than other for-profit owners. And I can go through uh, a few of those issues if you like. Yeah, go for it. Well, first of all, um, some of the concerns around private equity ownership involve uh, these owners potentially having little or no experience in nursing home care. (laughs) That seems important. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, also, they, they differ from other for-profit owners in that they seek um, high short-term profits. So returns of 20% annually is a common target that's cited, for example. Uh, this might lead to a f- more of a focus on increasing profits than on the quality of care. Uh, additionally, Medicare payments for post-acute care in nursing homes are, are much higher than Medicaid payments for long-term care. So this might lead uh, private equity firms to prioritize Medicare patients over those receiving those covered by Medicaid for long-term care. Let me ask you, Professor, to make a value judgment mm-hmm. here. If this was your mom, mm-hmm. would you put her in a home run by a private equity company? 
Probably not. Based on our research, we found uh, that these facilities have uh, higher hospitalization rates, higher rates of emergency department visits, uh, higher Medicare spending on residents. Uh, likewise, other studies have shown that um, they have higher mortality rates as well. Mm. I want to lean into a, a distinction you made about when these services are paid for with Medicare versus when they're paid for with Medicaid, because mm-hmm. Medicaid tends to be the program relied upon by people who have lower income or maybe don't have uh, other types of health insurance. So what you're talking about is people who really maybe can't afford or their families cannot afford to put them into a different facility. And so they're relying on Medicaid funding for their nursing care. Is that about right? Yeah, that's correct. And also um, a common scenario, too, is that someone may be in need of long-term care to the point where um, that care can't be provided in their home and they, they need to go to uh, a nursing facility. Just in, as an example, the majority of long-stay residents in nursing homes have uh, some degree of dementia. Um, and so what happens is many of them begin by paying out of pocket because Medicare does not pay for long-term care. That's a common misconception. Uh, as you point out, Medicaid does. But if your income or assets are too high, you can't qualify for Medicaid. So you end up paying out of pocket until you spend down your assets and then you eventually qualify for Medicaid. Is there an upside to private equity owning a, a nursing home facility? Uh, well, we like to be even-handed, and there are some potential benefits. Uh, for example, private equity firms have a lot of financial resources that could conceivably uh, be used to improve quality or you know regulatory compliance, which is an area where nursing homes have uh, consistently performed poorly. Uh, they could also help bring um, sophisticated management systems to improve efficiency. Uh, likewise, nursing homes have lagged behind physician practices and hospitals in their adoption and use of health information technology. There are some programs mm-hmm. that went to effect, oh, maybe 12 years ago uh, that provide financial incentives for physicians and hospitals to adopt health IT and adopt more sophisticated health IT over time. However, nursing homes were left out of those programs, and as a result, they've lagged behind. But private equity firms could improve the health IT infrastructure of these facilities. They're often associated with large chains, and again, they have um, large financial resources, uh, and they could help out in that respect. Whether they do or not is an open question. Well, I was just going to say, there were a whole lot of conditional (laughs) coulds in your answer there, (laughs) sir. Yes, that's correct. All right. Oh, and I guess that means that they're not actually doing that. Well, we don't know. It, it, you know, and you know, not every private equity firm is the same. You know, there are large mm. investors that may, you know, for example, buy up large national chains of nursing homes, and then there are smaller private equity firms that might buy two or three facilities in a specific area of the country. Mm-hmm. So, I've done a bit of reporting on this uh, new regulations around um, staffing requirements in nursing homes for the number of nurses and the number of on-call physicians and things like that. And the thing Mm -hmm. I heard over and over again was that there are not enough nurses, there are not enough nursing homes and assisted living facilities to adhere to the regulations, much less, you know, even meet the demand that's coming with aging Mm -hmm. baby boomers. And I wonder how you think about sort of the intersection of of private equity and for-profit nursing homes and just this growing demand that is unmet at this point. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Um, But one thing we see in regard to uh, specifically with uh, 
uh, staffing levels in nursing homes after private equity acquisitions. Uh, in our research, we've consistently seen that there's a reduction in the staffing levels of registered nurses after these acquisitions. So registered mm. nurses serve as a crucial component of care provided in nursing homes. Uh, lower levels have been associated with poor quality of care in numerous studies. So just sort of in very big picture here, um, mm-hmm. nursing homes are expensive. Um, mm-hmm. They are challenged in staffing. They are challenged in care sometimes. Um, do, do you suppose, um, is it a good business model for private equity? I guess is my question. Well, it can be. So um, there are a couple of factors that make nursing homes attractive to private equity firms. First of all, um, they receive steady payments from Medicare and Medicaid. Yeah. But probably the the, the biggest um, interest in nursing homes by private equity firms is the real estate. So oh, a, a common strategy is like, for the— sorry, sorry, sorry to jump I in here. I hadn't but thought that, about that at all. But, but that's like—I mean, when Sears was, you know, circling the drain, all the stories were about, oh, Sears is a real estate play. And then the, the actual company itself— goes kablooey, practically. Mm-hmm. That doesn't, that's not a great example for nursing homes, might I just say. Yeah, no, it is an issue. So first of all, um, when a private equity firm acquires uh, a nursing home, typically it's that transaction is done mainly with debt. The private equity firm pl- uses very yep. little of its own cash. So then that debt is then placed on the acquired facility. No, the private equity firm is not responsible for the debt used to uh, purchase that nursing home. So that leads, you know, often nursing homes are, you know, operating on very thin margins. So that adds further financial strain. But then uh, a common strategy is for the financial, is for the private equity firm. And, and this happens with other owners too. It's not limited to private equity firms. But they'll turn around and immediately sell off the real estate. And then they'll use that revenue uh, to disperse um, uh, to investors, not for investments back in the facility to improve the quality of care. So now you have a facility that's paying off the debt used to acquire it, and now it also has to make lease payments. Mm-hmm. So you can see where this can you know, sort of snowball and create uh, uh, further financial hardship right. for a facility. Right. So then for the, all of us who are thinking about either our own future or, or that of loved ones, like how do you approach thinking about and – planning for the future of aging in your family, knowing what this business model is like? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's a difficult question. It's not easy for families. And there have been a number of articles that have come out in the media about this recently. How do you finance these days? You know, it's, it's, not, it's hard to predict whether you're going to need to stay in a nursing home or not. And with just the, the tremendous expense, it's hard to plan for. There is private long-term care insurance available, but it's very difficult to get. Um, the companies that provided those plans starting in the 90s made bad bets. And a lot of people, a lot more people who purchased those plans ended up cashing in on them than they anticipated. And so the uh, underwriting for them is is now very strict. And it's difficult to to sign up for one of those plans, especially uh, if you're a little bit older. Or if you have any chronic conditions, you're almost certainly not going to be accepted for one. Um, Now, if you're lower income, as you raised the point before, if you're covered by Medicaid, your long-term care in a nursing home is covered by the state Medicaid program. For people whose incomes, if you don't qualify for Medicaid, then you have to pay out of pocket. 
And that can be very expensive. You know, a nursing home stay can easily be ten or twelve thousand dollars a yeah. month, and it varies quite a bit across the country. So, you know, the average family certainly can't afford that. God. Didn't yeah. so so what do we do? What do we do? Right? What do we do now? What do we do? Because this do is clearly not sustainable. Ten to twelve thousand dollars a year with an aging population. I mean, come on. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, a number of years ago when the uh, Affordable Care Act was uh, first passed, there was a provision called the CLASS Act. And, and forgive me, I, I can't remember what that acronym stands for. Uh, but it was a, a, basically a public long-term care insurance program, but it turned out not to be financially feasible, so it was canceled immediately. But there just isn't the, the political will to implement some sort of public program to cover this cost because uh, – the, the spending on long-term care is just so high, no one wants to, to bite that bullet. Does it make you crazy studying this stuff and investing in your professional life? You are a, a professor of population health sciences at, at, a, at a renowned medical institution, and here you are banging your head against the wall. It must make you crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it does. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, there's a common saying, you sort of get this system you, you, you pay for, and, you know, hmm. the... The way nursing homes are set up now and the, the way they're paid and the financial incentives in place and the way regulations and oversight are set up creates this situation. So there needs to be sort of, you know, across the board reforms to, yeah. to change this. Which, which, oh, by the way, I thought was what Obamacare was supposed to be. No. Uh, Sorry, I, well, I just did, keep dragging this farther down into this. Provisions. That's, that's a very broad yeah, <laughs> question. Oh, anyway. Boy. Yeah, and there are a number of efforts being made. I, I, I will say that, but more definitely needs to be done. Fair enough. Mark Andrews, is professor of population health sciences at Cornell Medical College. Professor, thanks for your time, and, and um, thanks for sticking with us as we dragged you through it. Yeah, it's just oh, no problem. Thank you again for having me. Oh, I appreciate you bringing attention to the issue. You bet. Take it easy. So you know, I, yeah. Yeah. So I've, we, we've, got a, we've got a family friend whose mother now has had to mm -hmm. be put uh, in a nursing home. And it is, mm -hmm. I believe, $15,000 a month. And it's insane. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not, I don't, what I, as I said to my kids, when, when we moved into the house, we moved into when they were younger, you're going to have to carry me out of here and sell this house out from under my dead body because I'm never going anywhere else. They're just going to have to deal with it. I, my sister works in nursing homes. Oh, wow. And just some of the stories that she tells, yeah. you know, about the workload mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. the very few staff there and the waiting list to even get in there. It's, yeah. it is a problem that it's sort of like one of those things where you like peek under the hood and you're like, mm -hmm. Oh no, and slam it shut. Slam the hood back down. Slam the hood down. I don't want to look under there right. because it's bad. And you know, people kind of can choose not to think about it until you have to think about it and then you realize how awful it is yeah. and that's too late to be thinking about it right. you know when right. you or a loved one really needs a place to go um and it, he's you know mark is right there's not a lot of political energy behind doing anything about it i mean they're barely willing to touch Social Security, and, and that's just now coming up. Long-term care? Not even on the radar for a lot of politicians. Yep. Okay. Well, with that uplifting bit, <laughs> uh, if you are supporting a loved one in uh, nursing home care, assisted, li assisted living facility, if you have thoughts on this topic or 
Maybe you're doing your best to keep yourself or a loved one at home. Uh, We want to hear about your experience. We're at 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. And uh, we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever, and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org academy. All right, we shall do some news. Kimberly Adams, you shall go first. Uh, A quick one and then a longer one. So the quick one is about tax season. Uh, We've talked a couple times on this show about all of the legal troubles related to TurboTax and these Mm. online tax filing companies uh, basically lying to the American people about free file. And the IRS is working on its own free file program, which it's piloting this year. But TurboTax in particular has gotten in a lot of trouble over the years. And so now, I'm reading here for The Verge, the Federal Trade Commission cracked down on TurboTax, issuing a final order that prohibits the company from calling its services free when most customers end up having to upgrade to paid services. Parent company Intuit had advertised TurboTax as free, 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 even though a majority of customers were, in fact, ineligible for free services. Um, The FTC sued TurboTax in 2022 over misleading advertising, and now they're saying that the character of the past violations is egregious. For at least six years, Intuit blanketed the country with deceptive ads to taxpayers across multiple media channels. So now Intuit can't say that any of its goods or services are free unless it's free for all customers or unless the company clearly displays which percentage of customers qualify or discloses that a majority of customers actually aren't eligible. Now the TurboTax website says roughly 37% of filers qualify for its free basic tier of tax filing assistance. And as someone who has used TurboTax, I can tell you that's usually only for the federal return, not your Mm -hmm. state return. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that uh, something to keep in mind around tax season. And FYI, uh, as I've heard from many tax experts over the year, if you're making like under 80K and you um, 
have a relatively simple setup, you do not need to pay to do your taxes. There are free services all over the place. There are tax clinics. There are uh, there is the IRS website that has a lot of actually free services. Most people do not need to pay somebody to do their taxes. FYI. Okay. So there's that public service announcement. Other story, uh, I get sent a lot of polls and surveys from from different outfits. And uh, I got an interesting one today from um, Legal Shield, which is, you know, a, a website and a call-in line that is a it, – it's sort of like a place that you can go to pay for legal advice, counsel, protection, representation. Mm-hmm. I'm reading here where they say on their about page, Legal Shield is one of the world's largest platforms for legal identity and reputation management services in, in North America. Okay. So anyway, they do a poll – looking at how many people are calling in or requesting their help with financial issues. Hmm. And they their legal shield data reveals the highest consumer financial stress levels in 3 years. So it rose there they have a consumer stress legal index rose for the 10th straight month in December, hitting its highest level since November of 2020. They say this is a leading indicator of Consumer Confidence Index, and Consumer Confidence Mm. has been improving. Mm -hmm. But they're getting more calls for help, and this is including help with bankruptcies, foreclosures, auto repossession, payday loan assistance. And their quote here says... Uh, it suggests rising financial instability for customers nationwide. And it's in contrast to a string of recent positive economic indicators, indi- including robust GDP growth, easing inflation, and a strong jobs report. Um, it's from a data set of more than 35 million customer requests for legal assistance since 2002 is, is the overall poll. Anyway, the, there's an interesting quote in here that says, people don't call attorneys unless they are genuinely worried about something. The strength of our data relies in the source, unprompted calls. And so these are real concerns from real people who sought out affordable legal advice to take action. All of this to say, I am... I'm, you know, I'm, I've been looking at the same economic data that you have. I think it's looking good. It's looking up. But people at the lower end of the income spectrum seem to still be struggling. And a lot of those struggles are mounting. We're seeing credit card delinquencies on the rise. And this is just another little tidbit. I wonder if we're going to start, you know, seeing more of that K-shaped recovery uh-huh. stuff yeah. that we saw kind of right out of the pandemic that, are we going to end up in a situation where one sector of the economy recovers and the other just doesn't? Yep. Yeah, it could totally be. could totally be. Yeah. God, K-shaped recovery. I haven't heard that in a while, actually. I know, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, what's your news? All right, so I don't usually put a whole lot of stock in the whole workers are dissatisfied and it's costing the economy $11 gazillion, blah, 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 except when it comes from a really reputable organization, and Gallup is one of those organizations. Saw this in Bloomberg uh, yesterday, I guess. Disgruntled employees cost U.S. companies, says the first sentence in this article, an estimated $1.9 trillion in lost productivity last year. That is a price tag on workplace unhappiness. More Americans feel detached from their employers in the aftermath of the pandemic, blah, 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 yada, yada. The disruption of the last few years has reduced satisfaction in the workplace, with more employees saying they don't clearly know what's expected of them, a symptom that reduces engagement. 
I it's just I will put this on the show page. It's really interesting. It resonates in in not a couple of ways with at least one of the people in this conversation who is not named Kimberly Adams, and also <laughs> uh, friends of mine are around uh, the public radio universe, and also in just general life. It's it's really interesting. Just going to what you were talking about about people, you know, feeling stressed and all that. This is part of it. We spend yeah. so bleeping much time at work, mm-hmm. and it's less and less fulfilling. You know, yeah, especially if, you know, I I got a lovely message from someone on LinkedIn the other day who said <laughs> something to the effect of, I can hear in your voice that you're feeling a little down about the news. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that you're OK. And uh, thank you for your concern. Uh, it does get to be a little um I don't even know how to describe it. You know, we're out here doing the best we can and we see the democracy going the way it's going. And and yeah, it 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 can weigh on you for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure does. Sure does. Okay. Okay. That is it for news. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. We were talking last week about how um, stimulus checks during the pandemic were sort of a a natural experiment of guaranteed income or uh, universal basic income, which was our our Tuesday program last week. And we asked uh, about how those checks might have affected you and or your family. And uh, here's one that we got. Hi, my name is Renee from Graham, North Carolina. We were able to actually take that money and buy some small equipment and it kind of kick-started this fundraiser, and I was able to open a business, the custom framing business. We just celebrated our two-year anniversary. I think about it, and if it wasn't for that stimulus, we would not have been able to open the business. It was such a small amount of money, but it has made such a big difference. I read somewhere the other day that new business formation in this economy is at a record last year, or was it a record last year? Mm-hmm. So, so that totally resonates. That makes a lot of sense to me, what she was saying. Yeah. I also, I'm interested in the impact of, you know, TikTok and Reels and and social media on new business formation. I want to see a study on these businesses that go viral online with whatever product, especially the startups, like how lasting that is. So I just bought this thing that I saw on TikTok. Oh, there you uh, go that holds plants, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I like plants. Mm-hmm. It, like, allows you to clip plant pots to your railing in a kind of unique way. And it had gone viral, and, you know, I jumped on the bandwagon, and I'm just like, I wonder how lasting that bump to your business is. And can you, is 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 it, does it, like, mm-hmm. get you in on the ground floor and give you enough stability to really keep your business going, or is it just like a flash in the pan? Right, totally. Did did it work, the thing you bought? It arrives today. I will uh-huh. let you know. And, and also now, do you have ads following you around on TikTok from TikTok for more things like that? Because that's what happens to me when I click on something. Oh on my Instagram, gosh, man. so I mean, many! Like, all, all, I, I mean, I'm yeah. I'm pretty deep into gardening talk and and gardening Instagram reels. So I mean, like that and a lot of like DIY home <laughs> stuff that. I will, like, bookmark knowing fully well I am never going to make my own bread. Uh, But, you know, the videos are pretty. Yeah, I hear you. 
Okay. Anyway, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer comes from Damien in Ridgefield, Connecticut. I thought that when my wife's 2010 Prius with 246,000 miles on it finally kicked the bucket, we'd buy an EV and we will have entered the promised land. And it died and we bought an EV and it was not the promised land. We bought the Bolt, we drove it for a weekend, had a ton of range anxiety. I mean, I'm talking like, are we gonna make it home? Are we gonna make it home? It was awful. Fortunately, the dealer was able to take it back and we since have gone and are taking delivery on a Tesla. So I thought all EVs were gonna be great. Turns out the EV market is starting to come to the dance, but everybody but Tesla has their fly down and a stain on their shirt. Uh, with, wow. with all, well, so look, with, with, with all possible respect, Damien, I think Tesla has its fly down and, and stains on its shirt as well, right? I just, there's lots of quality control problems with that car, which we yes. read about all the time. Production problems, also Elon Musk, but that's a whole different deal. So look, it's new technology. Not everything's going to be great. I'm sure that when internal combustion engine cars came out, they weren't all great. Full disclosure, I'm an EV guy, uh, brand new. I mean, like a year old. So far, so good. You, you do pay attention to range. I totally get that, but you have to manage it. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's we, we got to get there is the short answer, or we just have to stop driving, you know. You know. Yeah. I'll, I'll leave it to you. I'm going to stick with the Metro, my feet, and uh, car share services here there in D.C. because I'm go. lucky to live in a city that has it. Yeah. All righty then. Uh, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question, uh, whether you have anxiety about things or not. Uh, our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Berg. Seeker Ellen Rolfes writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry. Drew Jostad's going to mix it down later. Our intern is Talia Minchak. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodner is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.